Well, there you have another episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio, audio medicine by Green Zone Hero, and hosted on the Heroes Media Group Network, edited by Peter Turner on the West Coast. A lot of people involved in this project. I, I got to tell you, this episode, this particular individual is about as authentic and heartfelt as anybody I've ever had on the show. He is, he is, um, he's an incredible guy. He does his own podcast. It's called the Knucklehead Podcast. Uh, he overcame great odds growing up and he's turned it around in many, many ways. And what I love about Stephen Cologne is that he is not, afraid to admit mistakes and uh he's the real deal thank you for listening your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night you were born to fight you gotta light them up my name is john Crotech, and i want to welcome you to straight out of combat radio audio medicine by green zone hero we're here to honor the wisdom of America's most valuable asset for combat veterans. We're authentic, we're empowering, we're American. Save us all burn it down. This episode of Straight Out of Combat Radio is going to be awesome. Well, actually, they've all been awesome, I think. But uh, we have the original knucklehead here today. And I mean, I don't mean really literally. He is the the podcaster of the knucklehead podcast he's a 10-year active duty and reservist uh veteran for the united states marine corps and uh his name is stephen cologne uh he grew up working construction and uh, we were just talking about this a minute ago the word work we can get into that a little bit later but he grew up working construction in fact he bought his first business from a guy that was in the air force and it was when he was in iraq it was a lawn care company, and I love his slogan, one blade at a time, even though he actually admits that his wife gave him crap about it, but one blade at a time. He ended up selling the equipment, the list of clients, went into doing other things, which we're going to hear about, and all I can say is that he is making a difference in the world. I really appreciate this guy. The conversations we've had have been deep. They've been authentic, and uh, welcome to the show, Stephen. Well, John, I appreciate the introduction. That's uh, it's very nice to hear such kind words spoke about somebody with uh, with your experience, with your uh, and with and with grace. So I, I I appreciate that, buddy. That was nice. That was nice to hear. I don't know if I think as highly of me as what that <laughs> intro as what that intro uh, alludes to, but I'll take it. Hey, man, we got to take everything we can get nowadays. We were just talking about that the uh, the illusion of the real life in in the real world, but. Anyhow, let, you know, before we get to those subjects, sure. you know, Stephen, tell us about what it was like growing up in your household in America. Well, you know, um, my background was I I, uh, I grew up uh, conservative. Uh, I grew up uh, Catholic. And so the reason why I lead with that is because that was largely what dictated um, the perception of, of just about every decision that, that came through that household. Uh, and that meant I was, um, there was a heavy amount of discipline. Um, my mother, uh, and my father got divorced. I grew up, I have uh, two amazing older brothers. Uh, I've got a great younger sister and a great younger brother, but, uh, from various, um, from various relationships that my father and mother have had over the course of their, of their lifetime. Uh, my dad's been married a few times. Uh, I think he's on number six. And, um, and so I grew up largely without a strong, 
uh, father dictating or modeling leadership in a way that, um, you know, that I'd like to emulate and that I would want in terms of results for my life. And so with that heavy amount of kind of like command control, force discipline, it was, uh, it was difficult. Uh, I got beat a little bit, you know, I got, uh, and there's, and there's other stories that are much worse than mine. Um, I'm thankful for those experiences. I'm thankful for the, the pain and suffering that I experienced whenever I was growing up, uh, because it largely fueled, uh, the momentum and inertia that I needed to generate whenever things got hard or I just, I just worked. I left my mother and stepfather's household at 12, 13 years old to go live with my father, uh, cause that's largely what my two older brothers had done. And I kind of wanted to follow in their footsteps. Um, athletics were very, very, uh, prominent in our home. They had both played college football and I wanted to follow in their footsteps. And what they did is they went to go live with dad. So why don't I go do the same thing? Sure. Well, the, the unfortunate part of that is my dad lived up in Nebraska at the time. And I, I came from, from the great country of Texas. So I was a little bit of a, you know, fish out of water up there in, in Corkhusker country. And it, as it turns out, my dad, uh, my dad, you know, had entered into a business relationship with somebody, uh, with that was less than, it was less than above reproach. They, they did not have an eye to eye. They did not see eye to eye. They did not dispute their, their differences amicably. So, um, he ended up having to, to dissolve his involvement in that business. And then he left for Washington DC while I stayed in Nebraska. So I, I moved from Texas, uh, to Nebraska and, uh, and he, went to DC. So I, I moved in with a buddy of mine. So essentially I've been on my own since I was 16 years old and through a series of what I call now knucklehead mistakes, I've gone against the, the left and right lateral limits of life. And they've kind of honed in my, um, my experience here and have large, largely forced me, uh, to have to stop and slow down each time I make a mistake to draw what the learning lesson is and, uh, and learn how to move forward. Yeah, I get that. You know, so, you know, did you have anybody, um, in your family background that was in the military? That's a good question. Um, I did. I had my, so my brother, I'm sorry. So my dad's, uh, brothers, he had two brothers that were in the military and then he also, I'm sorry, he had three brothers that were in the military and then his adopted father and then my mother's uh, biological father were also in the military as well. So you had some of that in the background. Was that, um, you know, you talked about knucklehead mistakes and, the Lord knows I've made tons of them myself, but you know, who, how did you get to the Marine Corps? You know, was it because of these mistakes or did that lead you there or what was going on, man? Yeah, it's a good question. So it was my second DUI. Um, I was 22 years old. Um, I got my first one when I was 16. I, I prefaced the story by saying that at 15 years old, my dad left, uh, and I moved in with a buddy of mine. So largely with no guardrails in life, paying one of my buddy's parents rent, living and sleeping on their, uh, on their basement floor. And sometimes their couch, depending upon what I peed on the night before, just from drinking too much and making stupid decisions. Um, I, I got myself in trouble at 16. I got my first DUI. Then I got my second one when I was 22 years old and I realized that I needed some discipline and structure in my life. And so I joined the Marine Corps. Great. Well, just to let you know, you're not alone. Uh, I've got two, two DUIs on my record as well. And I'm not proud of it, but it definitely jerked a knot in my tail. So, you know, so you're 22 years old and are you a West Coast Marine or I know you're always a Marine, but and I've heard this from you guys. Did you go to the West Coast or the East Coast? I went to the West Coast. So and is there really any difference or is it just a is it just a semantic? I think it's a semantic, but 
you know, they have their own things that they deal with over there on the East Coast. The, the, the great thing about the Marine Corps is the culture, uh, the brotherhood and the sisterhood, just the camaraderie that exists, whether you're East or Left Coast. Uh, it doesn't necessarily matter. The end product is you're a Marine. And those that step outside of the decision-making framework the Marine Corps makes available to us to be a part of, those who step outside of that, they pay the ramifications. So uh, it's pretty clear when you, when you produce a product like a United States Marine, you're going to get you're going to get a contributing member of society, and that's what they produce. And they've they've been doing it for 230 some odd years. Well, that's a great way of putting it. So you so you're undisciplined. You know the, the route you're going is not the route you want to go after you know your second uh, issue. But tell us what it was like at 22 to be thrown in. I'm I'm assuming that there were a lot of younger guys there, but what was the training like, and how did it affect you? Uh, you're talking about boot camp. Boot camp was boot camp. It took me about two or three weeks to realize it was a game, and uh, and when I realized it was a game, um, I I led with the fact that my my two older brothers played college football. I left out the fact that I played football at the University of Nebraska. So I was a pretty good collegiate football athlete. I was a pretty decent uh, athlete in my own right. Um, you know, my roommate, my freshman year of college, is still plays in the NFL. I still have friends that I keep in touch with that are that are playing at that level. So what position? It, what, what position were you? So I, I guard and tackle. I guarded the water bucket and then I tackled anybody that came near it. <laughs> you're cracking me up, brother. So okay, so go ahead, man. So you're uh, no, I'm kidding. But I, I I got recruited to play some skill positions, but I kicked. I got so I actually ended up kicking at the University of Nebraska. I was a place kicker. And after about a week or so worth of practice, since I got recruited to play skill positions, I went to the wide receiver coach and I said, Hey coach, listen, if I, if I'm going to play football for this team, I, I need to go out there and mix it up. I, I like football. I like contact. I like the, the thinking component of it. So I ended up playing wide receiver for the rest of that year. Awesome. And what a great school too, the Cornhuskers. I mean, they got a storied history and my, actually my first, my first, first sergeant was a, was a Nebraskan, but Okay, so so you're in basic training. You know it's a game. You're going through the the, the skills and or the, you're going through all the different segments of basic training. What 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 kept you focused? Well, I knew it was a game. I knew it was a game. Um, what kept me focused was helping other people realize it was a game. You could see the the light bulb clicking um, as you went through the training. I mean, largely when you look at the change management process that the Marine Corps has developed and I think perfected, you're talking about in some cases, some 17 and 18 year olds that were, you know, wetting their bed and having mom pick up and do their laundry for every single day of their life up until the time that they left for boot camp. And then you have somebody that comes from their own experiences in life. So the spectrum of the product that they get is a largely undisciplined, unfocused, but willing American citizen who wants to fight for their country and, and, and have discipline instilled in them. So through that entire 13 week process, uh, I was able to experience, uh, some, you know, some skin knees some busted lips and some, uh, some pain and suffering, but through that process and that shared suffering, there's the culture, uh, that kept us together through that 13 weeks. I graduated as a squad leader and then went on to be, you know, come guide and squad leader through the follow-on schools that follow on basic training. And so I, I loved it. I, I loved every minute of it. I had cellulitis, I think. my So this right at the start of second phase on my left heel. Um, so that made that made wearing boots uh, difficult uh, and that hurt. But I, I remember t- telling my drill instructor, hey, listen, I, I don't want to get dropped, or this recruit does not want to get dropped, but, but here's what's going on. He looked at my heel. Uh, I'm thankful he let me sit in the rack for about uh, eight hours or so. That was one day of training. And uh, from that point forward, I never, I never really looked back. I just, 
I, I, I was so thankful for that opportunity to just allow my heel to get some, uh, some rest and, and I was able to make it through uh, after that. Well, is there any one, is there any one thing, one event that happened in basic training that sticks out in your mind as a turning point? For you personally, yeah, hundred percent. So I was given some advice before I went to boot camp, and it was never be the first and never be the last to anything. And uh, and when I largely look back at that advice now, I was hearing it from somebody who was a follower. Um, they were a kind of a, a closet leader in a way, but they were largely a follower uh, over the course of their lifetime. And so um, what clicked for me was I was in the middle of the pack. And drill instructor looked right at me after, you know, this is a couple of weeks in and he said, go to the front. And I went to the front. And so never again from that point forward, <clears throat> excuse me, could I never afford to be the first, but I also would never be the last. I was asked to lead two weeks in, into my, uh, into my time there at, uh, as part of, of, uh, as, as, you know, as becoming a Marine. That's awesome, man. So, you know, so obviously they saw something, your squad leader and basic, you know, your squad leader, when you get to your next uh, part of your training, you know, obviously your age and your maturity, I'm sure that you stood above most of the, re- that's why you're there. You know that. And then, so you get out and you get out, who came to your graduation? Do you remember? Oh yeah, absolutely. So my, my girlfriend, who's now been my wife for 12, it will be 13 years this November. Congratulations. Um, thank you, man. Um, and my, my mother, uh, my father, uh, the father who, you know, by his own right, you know, left me, uh, in, in Nebraska, he's, he's, he's had his fair share of struggles. So like what I understand now about having two kids, I don't, I don't have hold any ill will towards, uh, towards my dad. My dad is, um, you know, he's done, he's done what he's can to, to deal with his, his issues. And he's, he's always tried to do right by me. And so I, I always appreciate that by him. Um, and so I give him a pass on doing, you know, on leaving. It just is what it is. Um, and then my two older brothers who've largely been kind of, uh, indirect father figures for me. And, uh, and that's who decided to come out to San Diego and watch me graduate. That's awesome, man. And you know, I gotta tell you, I know I've said this maybe more than once, but there's something about the Marine and you talk about fighting for your country, but there's something about, I don't care globally about that Marine Corps uniform that I don't care where you're from, who you are, there is something really distinctive and wonderful about that uniform. And the men and women that have worn the Marine Corps uniform to me, and I'm an Army guy, I'm probably going to catch flack for this, but, you know, it is something to be proud of. Um, and so congratulations on that. Well, I appreciate I appreciate that. I, I was fortunate enough to go spend some some time at some army bases, uh, during my time in the Marine Corps. And, um, and I've got to just say the, you know, while I appreciate the you know, tip of the cap, the amount of unit camaraderie that exists in the army is, is pretty special. Um, there's some units that date all the way back to fighting in the revolutionary war. I didn't know that until I started interacting and mixing it up with some of the soldiers, uh, some of the greatest soldiers that have ever served in this country come from the army. And, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm humbled to be in association with, you know, sailors, airmen, uh, soldiers, and uh, and Marines, and even Coasties. They're, they're, I mean, they're they're just there's some really incredible folks that uh, that come out of our military. That's a great way of putting it, Stephen. And, and you know, pretty awesome, man. When you think about it, and you know, the lineage that we're all connected to, as you know, prior service members. Um, I, I got to say, man, every time I see the the red, white, and blue, there's a, there's a my heart just thumps a little bit, you know, stronger. So tell us about, um, tell us about your first deployment or, or the, any of the deployments that you had. 
Okay, fantastic. So I, I'd spent a little over four and a half years active duty, and that might sound odd to some people listening who know how deployments work. And I, I ended up going through what we call a tour conversion in the military. I was an unaccompanied first-term Marine, which has the highest statistic of divorces uh, of all the categories of uh, of Marines. And so I was essentially destined to be a statistic. I was I had just gotten married. And, uh, and I was shipped over a two-year unaccompanied tour in Okinawa. And so I was, I was destined by the statistics to have a, uh, a divorce, uh, to uh, largely go stay in the Marine Corps and, and just and screw up my relationships. Um, and my, my wife and I, we've been married now, like I said, for 13 years. Um, so I spent all four of those years over there because I had to do a conversion to get her to get her over there. It took me a year to get it done. Uh, literally from the time that I stepped on deck over in Okinawa, one year later, she was there. Uh, the process was supposed to take about 90 to 120 days. It ended up taking a year, but I got it done um, only to uh, volunteer for a deployment and go to Iraq seven months later. <laughs> and so she came all the way over there to Okinawa and I left to go to Iraq. And, uh, and I God. was in Iraq for, for seven months. God uh, bless her, man. God bless her. Now she's, my wife is, uh, um, there's some, there's some people, uh, who, who couldn't hold a candle to the, the amount of integrity, commitment, honor. And, and, uh, just my wife is, she's, she, my wife's incredible. So yeah, she's an incredible woman. Sounds very special for sure. So, so there you go. So you finally go through the conversion, you get her over there to Okinawa, then you bug out for Iraq. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about that's that. how that's yeah. how the things played out. But you know what? It, our deployment was fantastic. It was uh, our mission when we got over there was to uh, was to assist uh, a Navy construction battalion for constructing facilities all across Western Alambar Province. Um, so we got there at the tail end of 2008, and at the beginning of 2009, we were stationed at Al Takadam Air Base, which was a British air base before it became an Iraqi air base, and then we we kicked uh, Saddam in the teeth. Uh, it became our air base, and uh, we've largely given that back to um, the Iraqis now due to some policy issues that we don't have to talk about now. But the fact is, is, uh, is that's what we did. We, we went out and made sure that the MIT teams that were going and patrolling and training Iraqi forces had a place to stay. Uh, they, had, they were protected from the elements, and we did route repairs to make sure that all those knuckleheads that were over there, you know, putting bombs in the ground trying to blow up our guys – that we kept the, those those roads safe and, and just doing route repairs. So we did over 100 missions uh, in the six months that we were there. Uh, we only had two issues, and uh, we're, we largely became unscathed. And I'm just with the two issues led to uh, uh, led to some guys getting uh, removed out of there. But largely, it was just security patrols and making sure that uh, making sure that everything. You know, it was it was it was kept going. I I was working as a uh, as an ops watch, operations watch, as an E five um, in a COC. Uh, but every opportunity that I could, where I could get some coverage, I went out on a security convoy just because I wanted to be I wanted to be out there. I wanted to communicate with guys. I wanted to work on security. I had to volunteer for this deployment. I was an individual augmentee. Yes, I got shoved into a desk role, but I just I just wanted to go out there and mix it up and, and talk to people So, uh, and fight the fight. That's that's what I wanted to do. And so I just fit in where I got in where I fit in. What do you think kept you focused over there? Uh, clarity of purpose and mission. I got meritoriously promoted to sergeant over there, and it, it, every single accomplishment that I ever had in the Marine Corps was – because there was a, there was an opportunity to go and, and just take the bull by the horns, or ask yourself what you truly wanted to accomplish. And while I could work and outwork, I didn't have direction. And so what the Marine Corps provided me was clarity, focus, and and setting a goal. And so I 
I just, I learned how to focus my attention uh, on a goal. I mean, I taught myself Spanish over there, even though I don't speak it as, as well as, as what I used to. I, uh, again, I found, I found a business by staying in touch with some people via the, you know, I was, I worked in a COC, so I was able to leverage some of that spare time uh, that I had, which wasn't a lot, but I was able to leverage it to go and communicate with folks and, and find opportunities that I, that could tee us up whenever we got back to keep the, you know, and just keep the ball moving further down the field. So you bought your business when you were there then that's it. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I, I secured it. And then obviously I, I paid the guy whenever I got back from deployment, but yeah. So you made it safe through that deployment and thank God you did. And, um, I'm glad that nobody else in your unit got messed up. So you went back to Okinawa, you came back to the States. It's a good question. So yeah, we, I, I deployed with, um, with ninth ESB. Uh, so third MLG, um, is uh, Third Marine Logistics Groups. It's it's headquarters out of Okinawa, and and we deployed, and we came right back. Um, but I let I, I, excuse me, I left with Ninth DSB as an individual augmentee, so I had to go back to my original unit. Uh, my original unit had gone through some some kind of back office changes, so we were CLR three Combat Logistics Regiment three. We became CLR thirty seven. I went back to CLR thirty seven. So landing support company. I went back to the everyday grind of of uh, Marine Corps and doing, you know, helicopter support teams and port operations and logistics. Um, and I was asked to lead a team out at K-5 Wright, Kadena 5 Wright, which is an air base uh, in Okinawa as a staff in COIC as a sergeant. And uh, I got afforded that opportunity at the same time I'm mowing lawns every time I can, lawns by Stephen, one blade at a time. Uh, finished up uh, some schooling and, you know, there's, there's things that I did during my leadership tenure there that I wish I would have done differently looking back on them, but understanding that also largely developed my leadership style now, which is be clear in terms of what the objective is, empower those to make decisions on how to get there and then largely watch the process unfold. And then you make adjustments or exception management as the process goes through the, as, as you go through it, understanding a little bit more about, uh, leadership. I wish I would have been a little bit more deliberate with making sure that training was done. PT was a little bit more adhered to, uh, but our mission at that particular time was to make sure that people entered and left that ag-dag safe and manifested the, the right way and that no inventory or no cargo uh, was left uh, unaccounted for. And we accomplished our mission. However, however, I, you know, I wish I would have done some things differently. Yeah. You know, some of the things that you just described too, are, you know, we can always look back, I think, and say, you know, if I could only have done this or if I did it like this for sure. But the good thing, what you just said is, and for people listening is that we're constantly OJTing on the job training and and constantly looking for ways uh, to self improve. But what I liked what you said is the mission, you know, being mission oriented and being able to find ways to accomplish the mission where everybody has a hand in it. I think that's uh, yeah, I think that's pretty cool the way you said it. Yes, sir. So you're in Okinawa, and then you're getting ready to come back to the states. Did you ETS from Okinawa, or did you come back to the states and ETS into the into the uh, reserves? How'd that work? It's a good question. So I EA in the Marine Corps, we call it EAS. I EAS from Okinawa, and we spent. I think I spent when I say we, I re- my wife, she she was able to move back to our uh, our home of record. And our home of record, we had everything kind of shipped up and ready to go. We were supposed to move to Colorado, but we ended up coming back home to Texas. And uh, so I EAS, I went to the SEPS, SEPS company or SEPS platoon. I can't remember the name of it, but I went through SEPS, uh, went back to Texas and, and started working in software sales. And as it turns out, uh, you know, in that process, we, I mean, we had gotten pregnant. So we, that was our first our, we had our first son a few months after I separated from active duty, but I had started doing some training on the side, some training, some personal training, some physical fitness. I, I liked, I liked the, the way that 
you know, since I had sold my business, I really didn't have an entrepreneurship itch to scratch. Like I, I didn't, I didn't have a vehicle, a way that I could go out there and, and, and scratch that itch. So I started training people on the side and, uh, the software company kind of went through some changes. And so I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to go ahead and start this business. However, uh, health insurance became a big problem, you know, with a young family. So I, I decided to go back into the reserves uh, for the health insurance benefit. And then I stayed in that, in that reserve capacity as we built our business, which was a, a fitness and wellness company there in Austin. And it was largely just personal training in the beginning, but personal training, obviously each one of those folks works somewhere, right? And each one of those folks has friends, so our, our personal training grew into a uh, group fitness and corporate wellness service offering. So we grew a service-based business up to a point where we ended up having over six figures in revenue. Uh, at the same time, I, I'm joining the Marine Corps Reserve, and uh, we're going through this process. And we ended up having our second baby a few years into that process, and uh, we had a bunch of fun. It was, it was a blast. That's awesome. What was the name of your company? Lifestyle Revolutions. That's awesome, too. So you're not doing that now, but tell us... Or are you still doing that? That's a good question. So what I learned uh, in that process was uh, I didn't really know the first thing about the back end of running a business. I just knew how to work. I didn't have, I didn't take the time to stop and, and look at the details. Uh, and my first business and second business really uh, taught me that. It taught me that I needed to stop and slow down. Um, Lifestyle Revolutions taught me that you can leverage your work ethic and your service offering only only enough to where it, it brings in business, but it's not scalable unless you start to dissect and, and take the little pieces of it and actually start making that work together, more of the operations side of things. Um, so when, when I say all that to say that we ran that business for right at four years, we had looked at going out and raising money to develop a, a technology platform to bring corporate wellness services at scale to corporations, uh, but I got scared. I didn't have the confidence necessary to go out and raise the money and show investors ROI. Uh, and so I felt if I can't show ROI to investors, then I probably can't show ROI to CFOs who are going to try to probe me for my, the costs of my services. So we, we scaled down that business. We broke it apart and sold, uh, and sold the equipment and sold it off. But one of my corporate clients um, introduced me to somebody in the food wholesale space and he knew that I could sell. So I became employee number one at a food tech startup in Austin. And, uh, and I built and scaled the sales team knowing what I know about the backend operations and sales process. And, uh, and I helped build that, uh, build and scale that sales team up to about, uh, up to the end of that, that first year, right at $14 million in revenue. That's awesome work, man. Congratulations. So, but you're not in Austin anymore. So you, how did you get to where you're at now? That's a good, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm telling man. You, so, man, you're going, yeah. That's a, yeah, you know, you're good. So the, uh, the experience that I just described and largely what led to the genesis of knucklehead podcast was, was this, my HR director wasn't being truthful with my boss about, about, uh, an experience that was happening at the office. And, uh, and it happened to do with somebody that was in my sales team and, I didn't, uh, I didn't appreciate the way that she had went and conducted herself. And due to my experience in the Marine Corps and my kind of lack of polish when it came to dealing with conflict, I just bulldozed over, over things. And my experience at that time taught me that I needed to just go bulldoze. I needed to just go solve the problem and go figure it out. And so I confronted it head on instead of being tactical about it and strategic, instead of being strategic about it. And, uh, and I jeopardized uh, the future um, of my career with that business and what I call a knucklehead moment. And so I, I texted in a fury and a rage 
uh, what I felt about this woman to my wife. As it turns out, I was actually texting this woman as opposed to my wife. And so, you know, at that, what I call a knucklehead moment, uh, led to me talking about my experiences and the, and the stress and the pressure of performing, uh, as a Marine, as an athlete, as a sales leader, as a husband, as a father in a medium, in a form like knucklehead podcast. And so we started recording episodes. Uh, I was working some sales jobs to kind of, uh, make ends meet. And, uh, through that process of making ends meet was asked to take over kind of the back end operations for an experiential marketing company here in Dallas. So we moved up here in September of last year. At the same time, Knucklehead Podcast had kind of gone through some changes where we uh, we started inviting business owners to come and talk about similar experiences, their struggles, their mistakes, their breakthroughs, and what that led to their success. Because business owners, quite frankly, they're good at what they do. They're awesome at, at, at executing out there in the market. However, it comes at a cost. It come, and that cost is always covering up the, the, the gaps in process are always kind of, um, sho- you know, shoveling under the rug, uh, the mistakes. I mean, internally you have your own communication, but then externally you never really hear about some of those struggles. And so what, we, what happened was, is as we started inviting folks in, giving them the audience and the opportunity to talk about those things, people wanted to listen to those stories and do more business with those people. So we, we actually developed a, a business that we run now as Knucklehead Promotions. Knucklehead Promotions affords people the opportunity to be booked on Knucklehead Podcast, but then also we help people hone in their content marketing strategies, leveraging podcasts and sales strategies, digital marketing to actually help their businesses get up off the ground. Uh, needless to say, my my tenure at that experiential marketing company that moved our, comp- our entire family to Dallas uh, came to an end in January. But through this entire process, all the struggle, all the pain, all the failure that, and the heartache is, has led us to where we are today. That's, a, that's awesome. I mean, I get it. I mean, and, and I think that not, everybody in the, in the world has had some knucklehead moments. And, and wow, the, the ability that you have to allow people to talk about them and to you know, tell their experiences to others is it's a godsend, man. That's a, that's a very important role you play in the podcast world. Well, I appreciate that. I, we don't take responsibility lightly in our house. I mean, my eight-year-old son has been running his candy business for the last two years, and um, he's. It started with him asking me how money works, uh, and he's got a podcast uh, called Kidpreneur Podcast where he just he records learning lessons that he's experienced. And the reason why is because there's there's an entire generation that is his age that is largely going through this entire growth curve without, uh, without a deliberate influence. And I'm not saying that there's not deliberate influences that are out there. What I'm saying is there's not a deliberate influence to, to communicate the importance of work ethic, the importance of slowing down to speed up, and then also the importance of individual responsibility and entrepreneurship. And so we, we believe that there's a culture that exists in pockets throughout the world that, that create that force, that, that create that entrepreneurship as an opportunity. Uh, but it's our responsibility here in the States, as disconnected as our society can be, to just influence those who are closest to you so you have a fighting chance at actually influencing people at large. And so that's the message that we try to bring forth. We call it don't be beta and get some wins. But really what it means is wherever your influence is, wherever you have the opportunity to communicate a message and help people, that's your responsibility. And the second that you shy away from it, what ends up happening is this, that is an opportunity lost on potentially affecting the change that you want to have happen in the world. 
Well, you know, it, it, I love that. And and we talked a little bit about this before we actually started to record about authenticity, about the 21st century, entrepreneurism, things that we think need to take place. And, you know, you certainly stepped up. I, I don't believe that I have heard of a young person like your son doing anything like that. I mean, you talk about cutting edge. Well, that's cutting edge. And I, and I commend you for being the role model as a dad to your son and, and, and allowing and t- spending time with him to utilize his skill sets, even at a young age to make a difference in the world. That's awesome, man. I, I, you know, if they, I don't even know what kind of award that would get, but it's probably a medal of honor in podcasting. No, I'm, I appreciate that. I, I'm, I'm no, I'm no medal of honor. It's interesting. You mentioned it, that we have one of our, one of our podcasts uh, that we're helping set up, um, is is actually the state funeral for World War II veterans, actual Medal of Honor recipients in World War II. There's four of them still alive. They're four enlisted guys. One of them is based out of West Virginia. There's three other gentlemen, and I'm not going to do them to disservice by trying to mess up their names or tell their stories here. But to your point about Medal of Honor, these are four Medal of Honor recipients from World War II that uh, a state funeral is essentially not necessarily owed to them, but that experience of teaching folks how important World War II was. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to get back. And so I'm, I'm working with a foundation called State Funeral for World War II Veterans, uh, their founder and their co-founder. Uh, just to tell you a point about my, my son, the co-founder of that organization was an 11-year-old girl who said to her father, hey, daddy, do you think it would be a good idea for uncle uh her uncle was a medal of honor recipient in world war ii and he passed away and they said do you think that their uncle eller's friends are going to be able to get that funeral and the funeral was a like a funeral possession that president bush uh had just received and and so they that inspired the idea to get this movement going and that came from an 11 year old girl just like my eight-year-old boy is out there doing candy business the the minds of our children need to be just allowed to be um let kind of let loose and and we're there our responsibility is to help guide them as we're going through our journey as well and there's lessons that you have john as as you know being where you are um that can largely influence and provide wisdom uh to people in my generation uh that can help to influence the the youngest generation on on best next steps in order to gain traction and so i think that it's traction in relationships traction in business traction spiritually uh, and uh, and that's really what we're here to do. Well, I, you know, I couldn't agree with you more, but, you know, you said it really well. It sounds so cliche at times, you know, making a difference or, you know, make that phone call or but it's true. If we if we if we think a little bit about our humanity and where we've come from, and I got to commend you on the work that you're doing for keeping the history of World War Two alive, because, you know, it wasn't called the greatest generation for no reason at all. Of course, I was raised by an army officer, and I'm also raised Catholic, and we could get, we have a whole show on that. But but my dad, all of his brothers fought in World War II. In fact, they're all buried in Arlington. One of them was in Tokyo Bay when the Japanese surrendered and all that. But we've got wow. so much to be grateful for. And I think that, you know, we've heard that too. And again, it could be cliche. I don't think it's cliche, just like you don't think it is. But, you know, if we're just grateful for the things that we have, you know, at a basic level, and then how we can honor those before us, 
those that are with us now and those that will come after us, but how we can really become an integral part of society to me is what life is all about. Um, and, and, you know, and, and us being able to utilize these 21st century techno tools to tell the stories and to help others that, that, that might need help. hundred percent. One hundred percent. Episode 16 of knucklehead podcast. We had a, a Navy seal, uh, who was the youngest member of task force bruiser, um, that was, that fought the battle in the battle of Ramadi, uh, during the, uh, this, this most recent Iraq war. So, uh, his name is JP Donnell. He's a, he's probably one of the, the coolest people I've ever met in my life. But he said something at the end of our show that kind of rocked me. Um, he said, I, I've been guests some podcasts before, and I always close it by saying, get in touch with me. If you're listening to this and you need some help, if you're a veteran, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you have experienced trauma, whether you're a veteran, a non-veteran, whatever, if you've experienced some type of trauma and you're, and you're listening to this, connect with me. I'm going to try to do what I can to help you get the resources necessary. And, and I thought that that was, uh, just a, a, it, it kind of left me speechless in a way. And I'm sitting there trying to host the show that there was this guy that if for a complete stranger or somebody who he knew really well, that could reach out and touch and connect with him, that he was going to do what he could to try to help. And, uh, and I just, I think that guys like JP and, and, you know, the people that we've been fortunate enough to, to come as guests on our show, um, you know, if they, if they have that, that approach or that attitude that they can try to do what they can to help those folks, I think that that's, it just kind of goes without saying that that, that's the, that's awesome. So that's, it was, it was humbling to hear that from him. That's, that is awesome. That's about as human as you can get. You know, if you had a message to, to give to, you know, the non-veteran population about veterans and especially combat veterans, what would you want them to know? Well, I, I think that the only reason why veterans are, are looked at today or even service members for that matter, looked at today in the way that they are is because of the non-veteran community. I mean, uh, there's a lot of veterans and, and even service members now that uh, it becomes kind of a dog-eat-dog type of, of, uh, of, of environment in some cases. We, you know, we're, we're taught things like honor, courage, and commitment and integrity, and there's a few of us that just don't live our life that way. And it sours the perception really quickly, and it can, cer- it can turn really quickly uh, if people aren't careful. I mean, I, I think one of the greatest presidents to ever live said that we're always only one generation away from losing our freedom. But then the people that are non-veterans are, are Americans, right? They're they're Americans. That's what, what makes this war, excuse me what makes our country great is our uh, our individual responsibility and our kind of our collective belief in in being better every day, and uh, and that's a that's a that's not just words. That's every single day waking up and starting to be thankful for the breath that's in your air when your feet touch the ground, and leveraging every ounce of 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 production you can from every 15 minute interval of your life. That's what your responsibility is as an American because of the place that we have here in the world. And if you're not doing it, then you're part of the problem. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, everybody's at, at, at various stages throughout that process and it's okay. I'm not saying that you're every 15 minutes, you need to be doing something productive. What I'm stating is, is the attitude of every 15 minutes, I'm going to try to do something productive. It's the attitude in which you do it. It's not the result. Stop being so results focused and being more intentional about what your attitude is about what you're doing. 
I got to tell you, Steve, that was very well put. And one thing I'm glad you pointed out, seriously, is that those people that are non-veterans are Americans. And and it's just a reminder uh, that, well, those that got deployed were doing dangerous things in dangerous environments. There were people back here at home working and paying bills yeah. and taxes so that we could carry on. So 100 percent. What a what a well what a well put way you, you said that. Um, so let's just say I'm a veteran. I'm out there. I'm in a dark place. And uh, what message am I going to hear from Stephen Colon? Well, first of all, if, if you're in a dark place and you're listening to this, uh, I've fought with uh, thoughts of suicide. I've thought I've fought with. Uh, PTSD. I fought with depression and anxiety, and I, I understand that this is not something that is talked about in a way where you're empowered to take ownership and responsibility for those feelings. But largely, those feelings are are intensified only by your only by your uh, approach to them. My encouragement is you go out. And you start getting some wins, but you have to start small. And it might start as small as deciding to get up off your couch and go for a walk. And again, if you're so results focused in, uh, well, what's that going to do? That in lies, that should bring into focus that the problem is really just your attitude about it. And and understanding that if you can if you can maintain focus on the on the five to six feet that are in front of you or the next five to 10 minutes that's in front of you in your day and in changing your attitude about being grateful and, and doing what you can to get, get that five to 10 minutes, uh, something productive done, then what'll happen is you'll start piecing some of those together. What we call that, get some wins. You can't be a beta about the process, which means that you can't just test it. You have to go out and be willing to go out there and, and, and screw up and make mistakes because this is the real world. The real world, it has consequences. But just because bad consequences happen as a result of your decisions means that you're destined for a bad life. It just means that you happen to have some bad consequences. You could, that means that if you're willing to go out there and continue to take steps, you will have good consequences. You have to just keep moving. Pretty incredible advice right there. Stephen, what does freedom mean to you? Everything. Freedom is everything. We have freedom of choice every day in this country, and um, I, I'm humbled each time I'm brought back to the simplicity of, of what it all means is freedom's everything. Yeah, it is. It certainly is. How can people contact you? Good question. So um, this is where you're going to want to write it down. I spell Stephen weird, right? Stephen is spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N, right? If you just look back, look back at it, it should say like Stefan or Stefan or whatever, but S-T-E-P-H-E-N, and we're at uh, knucklehead podcast so steven at knucklehead podcast uh you can also get in touch with us at on facebook or, or linkedin at knucklehead promotions uh we're on instagram at uh, at knucklehead podcast uh we're also on twitter at uh, at pod knuckle pod underscore knuckle and um you know there, there's a few other uh, social media channels that you can connect with us you can listen to our podcast on stitcher on itunes on podbean uh, we're really wherever you want to listen to your podcasts. Uh, you can go out and check on that knucklehead podcast. Uh, we've got uh, a YouTube channel. If you feel like falling asleep, um, there are some, some sleep inducing videos there. I'm kidding. But my point <laughs> is, 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 uh, yeah, that so. we're, 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 we're there. We're there also. Well, you know, thank you for that. All I can say is this, is that, you know, I, I really appreciate you not only as a fellow American, uh, as a, you know, fellow service veteran, 
uh, but as a person. And um, you've definitely overcome a lot of hardships uh, in your life, and you've done exceptionally well because a lot of the things that you talked about today, I know that you believe them 110% in your heart. And when you have great heart like that, you're going to be an integral human being in anything that you do. And I know that your wife is proud of you, and I know that your kids are proud of you, and and I'm proud of you. And anybody listening to what the words you said today, they're proud of you too. So thank you very much for honoring me with your story, with your words of wisdom, Stephen. I really appreciate it. And uh, I really look forward to the time when we can uh, – meet each other in person and, you know, and talk about the things in the life that mean a lot to us. So thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Thank you for being absolutely. on straight out of combat. Yeah, you bet. John, I appreciate the audience. I appreciate the, the opportunity. And I just, I just want to close by saying that, you know, my wife is my hero. Uh, a lot of the struggles that I had, um, that I had talked about and, and, and I don't say that in a cliche way. Uh, there's a lot of relationships that don't work out because people make poor choices. Uh, and our relationship is is peppered with poor choices. When you when you talk about the the mean things that we've done or said to each other uh, over the years, but the fact is, is my life changed uh, in an instant for the better, and my life changed in an instant for the worse. Uh, but my wife has always been one to fight for the life that she wants, to fight for the expectation that sh- that she has, and she's always been um, somebody that's uh, that's helped calibrate my my perspective and expectation and i'm not saying that everybody's out there that's that's like that and it's not a it's not a picture of rosy you know whatever but uh because of that because she's willing to continue to go to fight every single day with me uh that that's uh that's something i i have to i have to highlight so well thank you for honoring your wife thank you Stephen. god bless you bet brother before they burn it down Thank you for listening to another episode of Straight Outta Combat Radio, audio medicine from Green Zone Hero. If you liked what you heard, then tell others about us. Like us and download us. And please remember, freedom is not free, and combat veterans are vital assets. They're not broken.